She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. In X-Files Podcast, Season 3. Episode 6. Too Shy. So just a quick content warning. This episode does have talk of like weight and also like weight numbers, which I know can be really triggering to people with eating disorders or people recovering from eating disorders. So just be aware that those kinds of things are going to get mentioned. This episode originally aired on Friday, November 3rd, 1995, and it was written by Jeffrey Vlaming and directed by David Nutter. This is the first of two episodes that Vlaming will write for the X-Files, and the second also appears this season. It's episode 19, Hell Money. And he is a story editor on at least every episode so far this season. Nice. So, yeah. It was filmed in British Columbia, Canada, and had a viewership of 14.83 million, which is down 1.89 million from the last episode. So this is the third lowest viewership of season three. Hmm. And again, you know, viewership doesn't have much to do with the actual episode. It's just who tuned in that night. Yeah. And possibly like what people thought of the last episode, actually, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes for sure. Yeah. And the week before, on October 27th, Fox aired a repeat of Humbug. And on Saturday, November 4th, the day after this episode aired, Fox did a double feature of Squeeze at 8 p.m. and Tombs at 9 p.m., which is kind of cool. So nice. And Tombs will actually come up later in our discussion because it kind of makes sense that they did a Tombs double feature after this episode aired. Yeah, there were definitely some similarities. (laughs) Yeah. So in Too Shy, when a woman is found dead in her car, Mulder thinks it might be related to a series of murders where the killer is finding victims through newspaper want ads. But as he and Scully investigate, it seems the killer might have updated his approach to use computer chat rooms to find lonely women. Either way, they need to find a way to stop him before he kills again. Yep. (sighs) So we open in Cleveland, Ohio. And there are two people in a small hatchback car. And the man, whose last name is Encanto, is telling the woman, who is Lauren, that he's a homebody. But when he read her words, the way she saw things, he had to meet her. And Lauren tells him she hopes he isn't disappointed. And he tells her they have a real connection, which is rare. And Lauren says most men don't feel that way. But he replies that most men don't know what they're missing. So we probably need to say here, and this is like about a little bit of what Tori mentioned earlier, that Lauren would be considered fat by many people, definitely by medical people. Honestly, in this scene, I feel like most people probably wouldn't even notice, but it is a plot point and one that does sort of use fat prejudice. I don't like the word fat phobia because I think it's a misnomer. But anyway, just for you're saying like, Nick, well, of course you would think so because you're like, let's be I'm almost 400 pounds at this point. I'm a big dude. Um, no one ever believes that when I tell them, because apparently I don't look like I weigh 400 pounds. And I think it's because the media tends to present a skewed vision of what weight actually looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. That said, I wasn't really personally bothered by this episode in that regard, but only because like in you know real life, usually things are worse, to be honest. But I'm also not all people. And that should be obvious to you by now if you're listening to this podcast. So, yeah. And if you're new then you know, welcome and thanks for listening and check out our Patreon page. Um, some of our t-shirts are available in sizes up to 4X tall and 5X large, though some only go to 2X and 3X. Yeah. So. 
And I'll just say, I like the word fat phobia because I think it's a good way to describe how people can treat fatness in a systemic and awful way. I'm also a fat woman. So like also fat, but, um, I do think, you know, Lauren will talk about later. They say she's about 163 pounds. She's about a size 16. Um, that is pretty much exactly what I weighed in high school when I was, you know, like 14, 15. So like, (laughs) it's one of those things where you're watching the show and you're going, Oh, fat people aren't lovable. I do not think this episode is that bad. It is not that fat phobic. It actually does not bother me that much either. I was terrified when it opened and I was like, oh God, it's that episode. This is going to be awful. I actually don't think it's that bad, but we'll talk about that at the end. But yeah, it definitely, I could see why it absolutely would bother people. So just be warned, as we said at the start. (laughs) Anyway, Lauren plays with her necklace as they're talking and she tells him that she can't believe it, that he thinks most men don't know what they're missing. You know, she's obviously had some relationship problems before. But after three months, they finally met in person and she's really enjoying herself. And as she's playing with the necklace, she's obviously anxious. She actually breaks the necklace. And so Encanto moves in closer to fix it. And it's a clover leaf. And he tells her it's beautiful. And he strokes her cheek. And then they kiss. And as they kiss, we do see that the side of Encanto's neck is kind of all crusty and flaky. And it's not the best makeup job, to be honest. But anyway, mid-kiss, Lauren's eyes widen. Something's wrong. And she pulls away and her mouth is full of this like yellow goop. And then Encanto like, boom, like puts his mouth back on hers again. And the shot changes to an overhead shot of the car and the car is rocking. So don't come and knock in. Or maybe you should because there's probably a murder happening here. (laughs) Anyway, the next day, a patrol car pulls up between two dilapidated warehouses and drives along the waterfront and parks in front of the car that we saw earlier, which was not the location it was at before. It's been put there later but anyway the cop gets out and he knocks on the window and he tells the occupant of the car to wake up and then he wipes away the condensation that's on the outside of the window and he's like mother of god and then he runs to his radio and calls for help and then we see part of lauren's body and it's all blotchy and then her clover necklace is encased in some kind of gel mm-hmm. on her chest yeah. and then we get the theme song it's icky <laughs> So this episode used a lot of slime and goop, and the slime that they used is a substance called ultra slime, which actually is what's used in Ghostbusters as the ectoplasm. And apparently they doctored it up by adding something called J-Lube, which is not what I originally thought it was. It's actually some kind of veterinary product, which I, you know, I assume is to lubricate things for vet use, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's probably used for the same thing that we're both thinking of, but just in a veterinary context. Yeah, probably. So anyway, but yeah, so that is what the slime is made of. It's very, that's it. Vets have some really long gloves. We'll put it that way. Well, I mean, they have to. I mean, especially large animal vets. So I won't even get into details about my cat's health, but I mean, I will tell you that one of his vets used to have to stick a finger in different places to get stuff out of him. At yeah. certain points, so. I've seen people <laughs> stick their entire arms in horses behind. Yeah. I mean, so, you have to sometimes. Yeah. Not a job I would do. Admire the hell out of people who do it. Yeah. Actually, you have a couple friends who are vet techs. So shout out to you guys. You are awesome for keeping yeah. our pets healthy. Anyway, <laughs> so then we're at the crime scene and we see men are examining the hatchback and the body's been removed. And there's an ambulance parked nearby and cops are like swarming around the area. So, you know, active crime scene. 
And Detective Alan Cross sees Mulder and heads towards him and he introduces himself and he thanks him for coming out so quickly. And Mulder introduced Scully and Cross kind of, he just kind of nods at Scully, kind of brushes. He doesn't really like say anything. And then he walks them over to the stretcher where the body is bagged. And he tells them that they found a purse in the car and the name on the license in the purse is Lauren McElvey. But they're not actually sure yet if the body is hers because they couldn't make a positive ID. So he opens the bag and then he shows them why. The body kind of looks mummified and it's covered in like this red sticky gel. And Cross says someone told him this kind of thing was up Mulder and Scully's alley. And Scully asks if they have any indication of the cause of death. And Cross says, no, look, we were just lucky to get the body into the bag without it falling apart. Like we have no idea what's going on. So Mulder uses a small, like it's a metal spoon-like spatula thing. And he takes a sample of the gel and he like puts it in this little container and he asks if they found the substance anywhere else in the car. And Cross confirms that the gel was only on the victim's body. And then Cross asks Mulder if he has any idea of what happened here. And Mulder puts a sample in the pocket and says, no, not yet. And he kind of walks away. And Scully tells Cross they'll call him if they find anything else concrete. So Detective Cross is played by James Handy, who's had a long, busy career. And he has appeared in over 80 films and television shows. He's known for his role in Arachnophobia, which is a movie that terrified me as a kid. He was also in The Rocketeer and Logan. He's also appeared in Matlock, L.A. Law, NYPD Blue. He was on Wings at one point. He was on Picket Fences, Murder, She Wrote, Alias. So he's been in a lot of stuff. He's very well-rounded. Yeah. NYPD Blue comes up again this episode because we had it a lot last episode, too. Yeah. Well, it's another show that just has a lot of, you know, you need different people every week. So you're going to have a lot of actors cycling through. <laughs> yeah. And Dally was probably filmed in Vancouver too, probably. I guess I didn't actually look, but I'm guessing it probably was. Yeah. So as viscous as it is, that gel would have to be on the seat and stuff. Yes. I, mean, I guess they're probably accounting for that kind. Of, it's just weird because like how they phrase it, it's like they're saying it's only on the body and not, and the vehicle is like totally clean. And yeah. like, that just not would not be possible if the body. No, I think what they so. mean is that it's not like in the back seat or on the roof. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like only around the body. Yeah, but also, where are her clothes? Melted off because of the acid. Oh, it's acid. I mean, Tori gonna, spilled the beans. We're gonna learn. Okay, we're okay, that learn. makes sense. I didn't, I didn't think about that, but I guess that makes sense. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I was just like, where? I mean, if it can melt everything else, it can melt her clothes, right? Like, okay, as we'll see. Yeah, so, yeah. so we will find out that it is a sort of acid. So that doesn't. I was just like, why? Why? Where's her clothes? But okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'll grant it. All right. Good job. Good job. Thanks. This isn't one of those ones where I'm like, Tori, you're like kind of stretching it to make no, it No, that's, fit. I think, no, pretty that's, well explained. That's a really good. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Good job. I didn't think about that. Anyway, so Scully follows Mulder out of the crime scene and asks what he thinks it is because he kind of like just like up and left. And Mulder tells her that a couple of months ago, a case came across his death from the Mississippi FBI office. Four women from Aberdeen had disappeared in less than a month. Only one of the victim's bodies was found, but it was too decomposed to perform an autopsy. And Scully's like, that was not decomposition we saw back there. And Mulder's like, I know. That's why he wants her to find out what this gel stuff is while she's at the coroner's office. And he hands her the vial and she's like, where are you going? And he says he's going to try and find out if Lauren McElvey was a lonely heart. All the Aberdeen victims had answered personal ads in the newspaper prior to their disappearance. If it's the same killer, he's just getting started. Ooh. Yeah. 
And then we see a computer screen and on the screen, there's someone named hugs and we'll learn that person is named Ellen. And she types, I'm not sure it's a good idea for us to meet. And I'm totally like pantomiming typing as I talk. I can't help it. This is what I do. Did the same thing in a red museum. Anyway, Encanto watches the screen and replies, why? What are you afraid of? His screen name is Timid. Ellen is probably in her late 30s or 40s, and she's wearing glasses and a sweet blazer. And she replied, disappointment, rejection, the usual. And Kanto kind of smiles at that. And he replies that he's been down that road, but she can't hide behind her computer forever. And he types, can you? And then there's a knock at his door. So he gets up and answers it. And we should say, that his apartment is always dark. Like he never has lights on in his apartment. So I don't know if that's a thing that's going to, it's not going to be talked about later, but I wonder if that's just a thing about him in particular. Anyway, there's a woman at the door with short, dark hair and it's Monica. She's the landlady. And she tells him that maintenance replaced all the keys on the storage units. And she wanted to bring him a new key. And he's very like, he definitely does not want to be talking to people. He doesn't want to be disturbed. He's like, just got the door barely cracked. And is like, you know, what do you want? Kind of thing. And then she's like, I know what you do. And he's like, oh, <laughs> what do you think it is that I do? Right. Because, I mean, he's, <laughs> yeah. he's a murderer. Yeah. And so she says, all that typing, the packages from New York publishers, you're a novelist, right? Or an editor. And then she says that she's a writer, too. And he's like, well, then shouldn't you be off writing? <laughs> but she asked if she wouldn't mind. But then she asked if he wouldn't mind. <laughs> It's just so good. It's such a like flat, like he's so flat and you could just tell he does not want to be talking to her at all, but no. she's just so, and she is totally, she is totally into him. Like she is, she's so like Donnie faster levels of into him. It's crazy. Uh, she is super. I mean, y- you have in your notes, how does she know he's always typing? She's probably <laughs> standing outside his door listening to yeah. him type all the no, time. Yeah. Like, that was a question I had. I was like, how do you know he's always typing? Like, he's just, she's like, probably he's not, always like, typing by the door. Like he's going up to his apartment and checking to see if he's there and like listening thing in anyway i guess anyway Sorry, i'll let you finish <laughs> <laughs> okay so she asked if he wouldn't mind reading something of hers some poems and he kind of hesitates and he's like yeah yeah that's fine and then he closes the door so then she walks away you say she walks away disappointed which she does walk away disappointed but he does agree to like look at her poems at some point if she drops yeah them, so it's kind of a vague like non-specific committal like yes yeah, sometime in the future yeah he's like yeah drop on by Whatever. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, like, but go away so I can close this door. She, stop talking. I think to she's you. just disappointed because he obviously doesn't want to talk to her. Yeah, <laughs> and he's not—he's not like into it, and he's just trying to get rid of her. Like, he just shuts the door right away. Yeah, but she, whew, man, we'll get into this more later too. She is like, she mm. hung up on him. Yeah, yeah. So Monica is played by Glennis Davies, and she has two previous appearances in the X Files. She was in Irresistible, ironically. Whoa. I don't know who she played. I think she was probably one of the classmates or something. And she was also in the episode Tombs. I think she was one of the people in the courtroom or something. I can't remember. I looked it up. Possibly, yeah. I I looked at the the name she had in those episodes. She's not in like the quick like summaries, and so yeah, yeah they're not big she was, like, roles. A major yeah. Character. yeah. She's also going to appear in the upcoming Jurassic World Dominion, which as terrible as Jurassic World melty volcano nonsense was, the dinosaurs are on the mainland now. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. Uh, I hope it's going to be good. Please be good. But anyway, she's going to be in that. She was also in the short-lived show Almost Human, which was so good. And I can't believe it got canceled so quickly. It was really good. Was that zombies or vampires? No, Almost Human was about like a, a future 
and there's like a cop that's paired with a robot and the robot oh, is played by okay. a black guy and it's all about like there was a lot of like you know prejudice towards robots and stuff and then they, they have to solve crimes and so like it's a procedural but like, so it's like yeah. alien nation but with robots instead of aliens and it's yeah it's a procedural and like i remember okay. there's one episode about a smart house that kills a guy anyway it was pretty good and it got canceled way too quick i think and she was in stargate universe fringe the chilling adventures of sabrina and once upon a time a smart house that kills someone that yeah. sounds a lot like <laughs> ghosts in the machine i know yeah. Whoa. yeah this one had yeah. like a pool and it like closed the cover on someone so they drowned in the pool because i remember finding that very haunting yeah. um but yeah it was a pretty good show I, I haven't seen it since it came out but i remember really liking it and i was really bummed when it got canceled so okay yeah there been a lot of those shows where like it's like zombies and stuff living among humans so i thought it was that kind of thing oh yeah like i zombie i also like i zombie yeah. a lot yeah so then we're at the Cuyahoga County morgue and Detective Cross is pacing and checking his watch. And Scully comes in and she's wearing scrubs and a doctor's coat. And he's like surprised it's her. And she's like, yeah, is that a problem? And he's like, well, Dr. Kramer didn't tell me that you were going to be observing the autopsy. And she corrects him and she's like, no, actually, I'm doing the autopsy myself. I'm performing it. And he's surprised that she's a medical doctor. And so she basically kind of pushes him to find out why, though it's pretty clear to me she knows why. And he admits that he's old-fashioned in certain regards, i.e. a misogynistic tool. And he even questions assigning female law enforcement officers to certain types of cases. For example, this killer clearly has a certain attitude toward women. Surely that will affect her judgment. And Scully assures him that just like menfolk, she just wants to solve the case. So Cross tries to say he's not being sexist, even though he obviously is. And Scully asks where he wants the autopsy report sent. And so basically, like, I'm going to do this. You can go ahead and leave. And so he basically says, you can send it to my office. And then he leaves. I don't think, I mean, maybe it's because I'm a misogynist, too. I don't know. We've talked about that many times. I don't think this scene was necessary. I get that they need to periodically, like, restate that Scully's a doctor and knows all the science, stuff like that. They didn't have to make him a dick to do it. I mean, I think he's... He's a misogynist. I think that's part of his character because, like, at the beginning, he kind of brushes Scully off. Like, that's just who he is, right? Uh, I don't know. I mean, she, she has let her feelings affect her judgment previously, but everybody does that. Mulder does that probably more than she does. Oh, Mulder does so, it way more than she does. Yeah, but it's just like, I don't know. I just, I think this scene was meant to do that Scully's a doctor. Like I said, they probably need to keep reminding new viewers that she's a doctor, or I guess not reminding new viewers, letting viewers know she's a doctor. Like, why is she doing this? She's an FBI agent. Like, but it's like, I, there are probably better ways to get done it, but I mean, whatever. I was just kind of like, it just seemed, it seemed not like it was necessary for the story, but whatever. I disagree. Cause one of the themes of this episode is underestimating women. And so I think this is a good, a good way to put that in there as well. I think it works really well. And I like the Scully's just like done with it. And you can tell she hears this kind of crap all the time. And she's like, not even surprised by it. She's just like really annoyed by it. And I'm sure as a woman in her field, and I'm sure women who work in lots of fields like this deal with that kind of crap constantly. So I thought it was good. actually. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a woman. So yeah. So I don't see it that that way, obviously. But yeah, I don't yeah. know. It, I, I'm also like everyone knows I'm not a fan of Scully. I don't like Scully as a character at all. And so this show tends to make sure that Scully gets lots of important scenes and FaceTime. And sometimes I think it's just 
I mean, she is, but she is a protagonist in the show. Yeah, but she gets she gets way more of like the scenes than Mulder does. Mulder just runs around being a crazy person a lot of the time. So, but whatever, it is what it is. So, yeah, we all have our own viewpoints, and mine may be wrong, but oh well, (laughs) fine. I don't care. It's an old TV show, anyway. So Scully begins the autopsy, and she turns on her recorder, and she says it's the 29th of August, and it's 4:15 p.m. And she takes the fact about the victim, gives like name and all that kind of stuff. And then she kind of pushes aside a gurney that's in front of the morgue drawer. But when she does, she kind of sees this like red viscous stuff like dripping down from the cabinet. So she opens it and then she pulls out the tray. And when she does, the stuff just like sloshes out of it. Right. Because it's got a lip on it. Right. So it's not going to just gush out. But when she moves it, like sloshes out. And then we see from above, the body has basically just melted into goo and there's just like this nasty looking skeleton in a drawer overflowing with this just like red viscous gross stuff mm-hmm. yeah meanwhile Mulder is interviewing Lauren's roommate who tells him that the man seems so nice and Mulder's like well you, I, you say you didn't meet him but she was just like on the computer and then Mulder asked what the chat room they met in was and she says it was called big and beautiful and she says that Lauren had a weight problem but too shy didn't seem to care. And Lauren would often read her the letters that he would send her because apparently they didn't just talk on the computer. He actually wrote her physical letters as well. I think they and also like, emailed too. I think they emailed back and forth a lot. And I okay. Think those some of the letters so it might have been well. a letter. Anyway, yeah. at one point they get there are hard copies, whether they yes. were mailed or they were emailed and she printed them out. And he knew exactly what to say. And she's like, it sure as hell fooled me. Because I mean, you know, hindsight 2020, right? And Mulder asked if she kept any hard copies, which I guess would imply that they were emails and were printed out. And the roommate says that she saved them herself. And then she goes to get them. And then Mulder asks if he can use the phone. And she's like, yeah, it's over there. And so he calls Scully, who's standing in the morgue. And she answers the phone like, Scully, like, I don't know what's going on there. But anyway, he tells her that their killer may have moved out of the personal columns and onto the internet. And Scully asks how he knows the same guy. And he says, well, apparently he opened this internet account with a victim's credit card. So apparently before he called Scully, he also called that place and been using Lauren's roommate's phone a lot to make some phone calls. Why doesn't Mulder have his own cell phone? Why is he using her phone? Anyway, apparently the man opened the internet account with one of the victim's credit cards from Aberdeen. So Scully tells him to meet her at the coroner's office as soon as he can. And he asks if she found something during the autopsy. And she informs there isn't going to be an autopsy. Yeah. Because the body so I guess, is, goo. Is, he, is he using, I guess he's using different names for different people. Because yeah. like, he was too shy, but then with Ellen, he's timid. So, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. Because, okay. you know, different chat rooms. I don't know if you remember the 90s. Like, if you had AOL, you had, like, one username. But you could actually create other usernames on the same account. But also if you weren't using AOL, like, or a lot of the chat rooms were just like IRC. And so when you went into the chat room, it would just let you pick a name. So you wouldn't be using like your account name. So you could just pick a new name all the time. And I'm sure he's in different chat rooms, using different names, talking up different people, you know, meet his victims. I never use chat rooms because that's that's too close to actually being social with people. (laughs) I was in chat rooms a little. I didn't spend as much time in chat rooms as I did like forums, but there were definitely some IRC chats or like chat rooms that you would go into for like, you know, a show you were watching or whatever. Well, also, that's the thing too. That's also a live thing. That's a time commitment. Like you go on a forum and type something and then come back later. Yeah. Whereas a chat room, you're like, it's live. So it's like, I ain't got time for that shit. (laughs) <laughs> anyway yeah when the internet in the 90s there wasn't <laughs> it's was like 
<laughs> yeah, that's what people did. Like chat rooms, IMs, forums, websites. There was no social media and it was so much better. Anyway, uh, social media was a mistake. At the coroner's office, Scully holds up a bone with a pair of tongs and she says that it's a bone from Lauren's hand. And bones have the tensile strength of iron, but this bone is soft and squishy and she like squeezes it with the tongs and you can see it like kind of squishes like a sponge. And Mulder asks about the sample he took off the body in the car. And Scully says it's kind of like hydrochloric acid. It's almost identical to stomach acid, but it's like twice as acidic. And she also found pepsin in it, which is a digestive enzyme. So Mulder asks if the stuff in the vial turned the body to goo. And Scully doesn't really have a better explanation. Like she doesn't know for sure, but she's guessing that's what happened. And Mulder's like, well, if that's the case, the goo should contain her skin and organs. And he asks if in the chemical analysis of the goo, she noticed anything missing. And so she checks the report and she says everything was accounted for, but there was a low amount of adipose, which is fat. And Mulder says, well, that could explain the weight discrepancy because her driver's license says she was 165 pounds, but the medical examiner recorded her body at 125 pounds. Scully asked, well, she could have lost weight. And Mulder mentions that her roommate said she actually gained weight recently. And so Scully's like, well, why would a killer remove the victim's fat? Which is a yeah, good question. But we get that thing that we get that I'm going to call lazy writing that happens several times in the X-Files. And you said it happens in other shows too. We're like, they're like, everything seems normal. But then when someone asks like, well, are you sure? Then they look and there's like, oh, except for this thing. And then they have like an entire textbook of knowledge about that thing that they overlooked the first time. I hate it, but eh, whatever. So. Yeah, it happens. So then Ellen is standing in front of a mirror. And again, she's the one who was chatting on the computer with Encanto. And she's being hard on herself. She's like, oh, I look awful, right? She's trying out outfits because I think she's going to go on a date. Yes. And her friend Joanne warns her that the warning wasn't just some broad thing it was issued by the fbi and aimed at women in cleveland so apparently the fbi sent out this warning about you know watch out if you're on chat rooms because there's some dude killing people and ellen insists that she's a pretty good judge of character and joanne is like yeah, i think you should just be careful and ellen's like i'm scared enough to meet this guy for the first time without you saying he's charlie manson and then ellen points out that it's not like this guy is some stranger she's been chatting with him for a month and Joanne says that he's probably as great as he sounds. But what if he isn't? In other words, yeah, okay, so fine. But, like, sh you should still take some precautions. Like, Yeah, well, absolutely. And, like, I think that's reasonable. And, like, I get it. Like, I have so many online friends. And I've met some of them in person. Most of them I never have. I have some friends who live really close that I've never met in person. Honestly, I've never I mean, you met. do a podcast with someone you've never met in person. 100%. And yeah. I think, like, back in the, you know, 90s, there was no, like, phone chat. There was no Skype. The word catfishing didn't exist yet. But there was this idea that, like, oh, the internet's dangerous. And you don't really know who's on the other side of the screen. But when you, like, would talk to people for a really long time, like, you would start to really get to know them. And it, you know, usually felt like, oh, I really know this person. And when it would turn out that person was someone totally different, it was always like, you know, a little bit of a betrayal because you're like, oh man, I thought you were someone else. Yeah. So, I mean, I get what she means. Like she thinks she knows them. They've been talking for a month, which isn't that long. But if you talk to someone a lot, you know, but like talk to him on the phone first, make sure he's actually a person and then not a robot <laughs> and then meet in a brightly lit public place. Yeah. And it's a dating, it's kind of a dating form as well. I mean, not officially, but I mean, that's kind of what it's there for. So what is 
the forum that they talk to you on in the chat. Room. Oh, the chat room. Yeah. 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 So Ellen's friend, Joanne, is played by Carrie Sandemersky. She was Tracy in Roland. Okay. And she will also be in an episode of Millennium. She was also in an episode of Once Upon a Time, which Tori mentioned earlier. And I believe I mentioned in Roland that she played Vincenzo Terranova's sister in several episodes of Wise Guy, which I think was actually her first acting credit and was also one of the first television shows along with 21 Jump Street to be filmed in Vancouver, British Columbia, both of which I watched way more than I watched The X-Files, to be honest. So Nice. Yeah, they lured me in with that copaganda hardcore. Oh, they got me. <laughs> So then we cut to a restaurant and I'm going to let Tori tell us the name because it's in French. Okay, my French accent is awful, but it's Les Trois Etoiles, which is the three stars. Yep. And it says that on the little marquee, like the little, it's like a, like the tarp thing that's over like the entryway, right? Isn't it mm-hmm. kind of thing? Yeah. What those are called, but anyway. So Encanto is standing outside and he's got a bouquet of flowers. And apparently he's been there for a while because he's checking his watch. And then he realizes he's been stood up and it's dark outside. And so he dumps the flowers in the gutter. And it's kind of, it either has been raining or it's kind of sprinkling or something. Because like the gutter is like full of water. And then he leaves. And then we see like, it's like it's under like an overpass or something. And it's a place where a bunch of sex workers are hanging out and cars are driving by. And they're getting in and, you know, that kind of thing. And he walks past several of them. And then he sees one who's a little bigger than the others. She's both taller and just larger build than the others. And then she takes him to a private area under like this other bridge. It's more secluded, like almost in like an alley kind of thing. It looks kind of nasty, to be honest with you. I'm not sure why you'd go there. But she asks what he likes and he goes in for a kiss. But she's like, no, no kissing. But she's like, I'll do whatever else you want. Just let me know. She starts to do his pants. But then he grabs her by the throat. And she's like, ah, and she like scratches him because, you know, they're probably used to do like trying to do stuff with him. And it leaves like huge gashes in the back of his hand, like huge gashes in the back of his hand. Yeah, like and her fingernails up, peel off, like roll. Yeah, skin. she's got like, like sections of skin, like sticking yeah. up out of her fingernails as she holds it up. And then he lunges at her and she screams. And then we see another sex worker walking with her client to the area. And they're like, oh, you know, I know a place we can go. And again, why would you go nasty alley like dude if take in the car or something? Come on. Anyway, they see Encanto and he looks up because he's been feeding on the first woman and then he runs away. And actually, if he just kept his head down, they probably wouldn't have seen him because like he sticks his head up and then they see him. But they walk over and they discover the body and her face is kind of like covered in that goo stuff. And it looks like it's kind of already starting to dissolve a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then the dude is like, nope, and like heads out. <laughs> and then the sex worker's like, oh my God. And then we have a commercial. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. that guy's out of there. He's like, I did not sign up for this. And he's just no. cool. and also again, what a nasty Alec gross, dude. Come on. <laughs> so then it's the next morning, and Scully's bent over the body, and there was a tarp that was put over it. She has it pulled back. And Cross tells her that the victim was Holly McLean. She worked the area for the past few years, but she wasn't most John's first pick, if you know what I mean. And we do know what you mean. You're a douchebag, Detective Cross. That's what you mean. So Mulder comes over and he asks what happened and Cross tells him it looks like it was their guy again. And Scully says her air passages are blocked with what appears to be the same viscous hydraulic acid they found on Lauren McElvey. And Cross says about the goop and he kind of gets mad that they're holding information back because he hasn't heard much about the goop. Yeah. Well, I mean, they kind of are too. They're talking about stuff and he walks in while they're talking. So. Right. Yeah. 
And Mulder tells him the killer is a serial killer using online chat rooms to find single women. And Cross is like, well, that doesn't really jive with a sex worker as a victim. And Mulder agrees. He figures something went wrong last night and the killer was forced to improvise. And Cross thinks this means the killer has no MO, but Mulder says that's not true. And he produces copies of the letters that the killer sent to Lauren, all of which contain lines from a handful of 16th century Italian poems. They're rare poems, the kind of thing you'd only find in private libraries. And so Cross thinks this means the suspect must be a college professor. And Mulder agrees, or maybe a graduate student or some kind of translator. And Mulder wants Cross to compile a list of everyone in Cleveland with those credentials. And then Scully says she found something that might help and holds up the victim's hand with the flesh still in her fingernails. And she says the woman left her mark and the killer should have an identifiable wound pattern. I also think, so going back to Cross and how I, that scene, I think too part of this is that like the things I recognize this guy from are things where he's kind of more likable. Yeah. And so I'm, and so I'm kind of pushing back of like, they didn't need to do that to him. Like he's not like that. So I think it's one of those things too. Yeah. I mean, the character's obviously meant to be like a misogynistic asshole, but yeah. So obviously the actor normally does not play that. So he's not, he's not that kind of like, like machismo, like misogynist though, you know, like a lot of like, you know, like in, like in, going back to squeeze right like you know like all those dudes like they were like all <laughs> he's not like that kind of dude but he definitely does have some well and that's the thing about like women doing the job so yeah. yeah and that's the thing is like misogyny like so many other problems is just like you know regular people exhibit these things because they have like stereotypes or prejudices and so they just you know it doesn't have to be some macho dude who thinks that he's like manly man it can just be some guy who thinks maybe women aren't qualified to be doctors <laughs> Yeah. And also it can be institutional and you can like hold misogynistic beliefs without even realizing they're misogynistic beliefs. Oh, for sure. Like, that's what that you've always, that's what you've always learned and you don't know any better. So, yeah, yeah. Not trying to defend him. I'm just saying like I'm I'm kind of pulling back on maybe some things I said earlier because I'm I'm realizing like it's just I think like this dude, I know him from other stuff and I'm like, he's not like that. So I'm like carrying over. That's what makes it fiction. so much from reality is what i'm telling you guys <laughs> that's what makes so. <laughs> it so insidious though right it's just like that it's like you know in get out or whatever like the nice you know friendly next door racist right like it's just that everyone can be a little bit bad yeah. at these things and so it's it's more insidious that way <laughs> yeah if nothing else you've learned a lot about that kind of stuff during the pandemic with people that you may know so yeah i know i have Anyway, Encanto is sitting in the dark in his apartment. Again, he almost, I don't think he's ever has lights on in his apartment. No, I don't think he does. And either. he's cutting the loose skin from his hand wound. It's very like Terminator style, too. He's like just like big chunks of skin. He's like just cutting away from the wound. I'm not sure why you'd be cutting it all loose from the wound. So just trying to wrap it up. But anyway, so then his buzzer rings and he presses the call box and a voice tells him he has a package for him from Stratcher Publishing. And he's like, no, leave it. And the guy's like, nope, got to get a signature. Sorry. So he's kind of like, oh, so we see him coming downstairs and he's got his hand wrapped in some gauze. And then there's a girl in the hall and we kind of can tell that she's blind and she's kind of feeling on the hall. And then she bends down to pick something up. And then he kind of like hesitates and kind of like, and like walks past her. And then as he walks past, she's like, hello, Mr. Kanto. And he's like, hi, Jesse. And then, like, just tries to, like, keep walking. But then Monica, the landlady, who is actually her mom, comes out. 
and she's like, oh, hello, Mr. Encanto. She's so and happy to see him. She's like, hello. She's so happy to see him. Yeah. And she's got paint on her. So like, I guess they're painting one of the empty apartments or something. And Encanto's like, I'm just out here to pick up a package. And then Monica's like, Jesse, do you know that Mr. Encanto is a writer? And she's like, yes, mom, because you've told me a million times. So she like, you know, pulls her head back. And then Monica says that she's putting those poems together. And he's like, oh, okay, fine. Yeah, just slip them to my door at some point. And she smiles. And then she's like, after you read them, maybe I can take you out to dinner sometime. And in the background, Jesse's like, give me a break it's pretty <laughs> hilarious it is pretty but, hilarious <laughs> i like jesse a lot actually yeah. I think she's great and he says that he's busy and on a deadline and then the, the guy on the door is like hey hey bang on the door and so Encanto goes to get the package and then monica's like i wish you weren't always so rude to him and jesse's like he creeps me out and he smells like he uses dish soap for an aftershave so <laughs> what's yeah, funny is like i don't even think she was rude to him the mom's just mad that he doesn't like her and yeah so she's like why yeah, are no. you always so rude to him and it's like she's not doing anything wrong. no i mean she said hi to him she didn't say anything you know <laughs> yeah if anything this is one of the things i don't like he almost seems like he's creeped out by her for some reason maybe he just didn't want to be seen like he just wanted to like get in and out of his apartment I think without anybody, so. like, commenting on him and then maybe he also knows it like you know who her mom is and it's like oh crap your mom's probably nearby well and also he, he knows he has this wound and that he you know was seen and so like he probably doesn't want anyone to see his hand bandage because that might you know they might connect that to news that comes out later or something yeah also they're both wearing these white t-shirts which doesn't help but her daughter looks like a total mini me yeah she does kind of weird they have like, the same haircut and everything and then not to be ableist but like why is she sending her blind daughter out in the hallway to find like drop cloths that are just like left in the hallway like that seems weird but i don't know like because she comes out being like jesse did you find the drop cloths i told you to go find and then she's like oh mr Encanto," and it's like why are you sending your blind daughter out to find stuff that you don't even know where it's at that just seems weird but you no know, blind people can find things. I guess I don't know, but it just seems strange. Like, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it just it just seemed weird to me. So then we're at the Cleveland Police Department, First District, and it's ten thirty a.m. And Scully is with the detective who's searching the databases because they're looking for a suspect using the parameters that Mulder came up with. And Mulder walks in and he gestures to Scully that he wants to talk to her. So Scully goes over there. And he tells her that he had the crime lab run the skin sample against the non-offenders database. And then he hands Scully a file and she opens it. And she's like, it says it didn't find a match. And Mulder's like, no, but we found something else. Check the next page. So she turns the page and apparently the skin sample contains no oils or fatty acids. And so she's like, well, there are a number of things that could lead to that result. And Mulder's kind of he warns Scully he's kind of like well you know I haven't fully formed this theory but like what if the killer isn't doing this out of some psychotic impulse what if he has a physical need to replenish those things and Scully's like so what you're saying he's a fat sucking vampire and Mulder thinks that if she checked the Aberdeen victims she'd find that they were missing adipose tissue too and maybe the killer secretes a digestive acid which helps break down the fat which then he consumes before the rest of the body disintegrates. And if Mulder is right, they'd be looking for some kind of genetically different person, a creature who may be responsible for who knows how many missing person cases. And then Cross comes up and he says that he's got a list of 38 names. He thinks they should divvy them up 
And they'll bring other people on board to help check them out because 38 is a lot of people. And Scully says she'd like to brief everyone first. Cross kind of hesitates and then he agrees. Yeah. And yeah, it's not totally dissimilar to tombs, right? Like he has to replenish stuff Mm -hmm. every so many years. So it's very similar in that regard. Yep, it is. So inside his dark room and Kanto opens his package, which I think is used. They use the same shipping service that the dudes used to ship like hog legs in F Emasculata. So anyway, maybe that's like some company. It's probably a fake company, but anyway, yeah, they probably got like the they probably printed a bunch of those things because they're like, <laughs> hey, we might as well use them. That's so, the fake company name that their lawyers approved. So that's the one they can probably use. Yeah. yeah. And they have the they have the file, so they just printed some more off. Anyway, it's a book of Italian poems, and he's looking at it, and he's oh, really into his Italian poems. And then his computer beeps, and it's like you've got mail and he opens it doesn't actually say that because that's like trademarked from aol but it's close yeah and then and then he opens the mail and it's from hugs who we know is ellen and she apologizes about last night when she didn't show up she asks if they can please try again and she'll explain when they're together and he smiles and then there's a knock at his door and then we cut to a door and it's scully and she's like fbi and asks if she can talk to them then we cut and it's not in Kanto. It's some different dude. But then we do see in Kanto open a door and Detective Cross is at his place. And he lets Cross in and then closes the door. You know, and Cross tells him, I want to talk to you about some stuff. And then he notices that in Kanto's hand is bandaged up. And then in Kanto notices that Cross is looking at his hand and he looks up at him. Mm-hmm. Uh-oh. Yeah. So then we're back at the Cleveland Police Department and Mulder starts to make a joke about being an Amway salesman. But then Scully tells him that because like he comes in and he's like, I feel like an Amway salesman, you know, he says he would make a very good one. (laughs) Yeah. Which to be fair, neither would I. But then Scully tells him that Cross hasn't checked in yet. They keep calling his cell phone, but they're not getting any answer. And then at a restaurant, we see that Encanto and Ellen are sitting at a table and Encanto reaches for the check and Ellen slaps his hand away. And she tries to insist on paying because she feels bad about standing him up the other night, but he insists. And then as he like reaches out for the check, she notices a like blotchy patch of skin under his sleeve. And he notices that she noticed and he tells her that it's a kind of eczema and he's had it since he was a kid. And then he tells her that whatever her reasons for not showing, they were probably good ones. And she's like, you were right. I was afraid. And then he's like, you're not still afraid, are you? And she's like, no, I'm not. And then he's like, well, you know, I'm sorry, but I have to get going. The last crosstown bus leaves in 15 minutes. And she's surprised he's taking the bus. So, of course, she offers him a ride home. He puts in a lot of time and money and effort to obtain his preferred victims, I have to say. Yeah. Um, especially because, like, he knows he's going to kill her. Like, let her pay, too. Like, <laughs> you know. Well, he's probably using a stolen credit card, so it's probably not his. Oh, I know, but then that's not a good, you know. Yeah, I know. That's trackable. So, yeah. So then Monica, the landlady, she goes to Akanto's apartment and she's got like her envelope, you know, obviously full of her poems. And and she knocks on the door and no one answers. And so she calls out his name and no one answers. And like he told you just to slide under the door, lady. So she tries to slide under the door. It actually gets like halfway under the door, but she must have like probably put some 
other fancy stuff in there that's not poems because like it gets stuck halfway. So rather than just leaving it there, she pulls out her key ring. Mm. And it's like one, like one, just leave it. Like he told you just to leave it under the door. Like it's halfway under the door. Leave it. Also, yes, this dude is a genetic mutant killer, but tenant's right. You can't just go into someone's apartment because you want to and have a key. That's not how that's supposed to no, work. It's not person. cool. Yeah. And it's you know, so. you and I both live in apartments, so we're both very like, uh-uh, uh-uh, no entry. <laughs> yeah. No entry yeah. without 48 hour notice. Nope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> or prior permission. Anyhow, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and just because, like, I mean, like, again, he's told you to slide it under the door. It's basically under the door. Like, yeah, I mean, she should. And I think, I don't know what she's even thinking, because, like, I don't, I can't imagine that if you like someone, they're going to be yeah, happy about you Yeah, because it's not like she opens apartment. a door to, like, just put it in the door and then closes it. She, like, we'll see. She goes and, like, puts it, like, on his bookcase for him. Yeah, so. which, that's super intrusive. Anyway, I'll let you finish the scene, because that's No, no problem. Yeah. So, in the car... Ellen pulls up to Encanto's building and she asks how long he's lived there. And she's kind of doing like super nervous, like small talk until she's like, not that she's uncomfortable around him, but just like, she is not used to dating and is super self-conscious and just everything. Right. And so he doesn't return the small talk and he's like, you don't have to be nervous. And she actually does, but you know, (laughs) he's trying to, he's trying to calm her down. Like if he's not, if he wasn't a genetically mutant killer, then he'd be like trying to be like, hey, you know, just relax, you know, that kind of thing. Anyway, so Monica goes into Encanto's apartment. She like walks way in there, puts it down like by his desk and stuff. And then a fly lands on it. And then another fly lands on it. And um, man, we just had flies last episode too. I don't need to be seeing flies again. Anyway, then we cut back to the car and Encanto is stroking Ellen's cheek. And he's like, why don't you come upstairs with me? And she's like, oh, it's kind of late. And he's like, but I don't want to say goodbye just yet. Do you? And then as he's saying that, he notices a light on in his apartment because he can see it from the street and he sees someone moving around inside. So then like he just totally like his tone changed everything. He's like, you're right. It's late. I got to go. And he like gets out of the car. Mm-hmm. So then she looks because she feels like, oh, she did something wrong too. So like, right, totally yeah. it reinforces that feeling on her. And then we're back in the apartment and Monica walks into the bathroom and I think maybe the windows open, which I'm hoping because otherwise, why does this dude have a bunch of flies in his apartment, which is gross, but like the, the shower curtain seems like it's kind of moving of its own. So maybe there's a window in the shower and you know, the wind was blowing, but she pulls back the shower curtain and in the bathtub covered in goo crosses body. Hmm. Yeah. And then she's like, oh, oh. but then we flip the point of view. And we see that Encanto is standing in the doorway to the bathroom. Oh, another reason not to go into other people's apartments. Because, like, yeah. They could walk in and be like, what are you doing here? There's not a dead body in the bathtub. Just like, what are you doing (laughs) in my apartment? But, yeah, like, especially if they're a serial killer. Yeah. Anyway, we come back from commercial and Jesse is at the door to Encanto's apartment. And so she's like gonna knock on it, but then it opens when she pushes on it. So she calls his name. She's like, Mr. Encanto. And she like steps inside and she's wearing her pajamas and slippers. And he appears in the living room and he's like, what do you want? And like, he's, he's kind of brusque. And she's like, I was just wondering, do you know where my mom is? And he's like, no. And Jesse tells him that her mom takes a class and was supposed to be home over an hour ago. And behind Encanto, I think we get a flash of Monica's body. I'm not sure. Yeah, like on the floor. I think her body's crumpled on the floor. Yeah. Yeah. And so Jesse's like, 
I was just wondering if maybe she stopped by to say hi tonight or anything. And Encanto's like, nope, not tonight. But Jesse realizes something's wrong. And so she thanks him and like starts backing out of the apartment. But when she does, she trips over the suitcase that's near the door. And Encanto like grabs her to steady her, but like he grabs her really hard and he's like, I'm going on a business trip. And you know, it's kind of like, okay, she didn't ask. But then he tells her, like, don't worry about your mother. I'm sure she'll be fine. And then he shuts the door and leaves Jesse in the hall. Yeah. Well, because she was feeling around and felt that it was a suitcase. And so maybe he felt he had to cover why there was a suitcase by the door. Right. I'm guessing that's why he told her. So yeah. But then we're at the Cleveland Police Department and everyone is calling around, still trying to find Cross. And Mulder and another officer approach Scully. And they tell her that they just got a 911 call reporting a homicide at one of the addresses that was on Cross's list. Yeah. So I had a little problem with the scene because we see the scene and like everyone in the department is on telephones and they're running around carrying files back and forth and looking up addresses and finding telephone numbers. It's like the, li- the list had 38 names. They divided the list up into like at least like three, four people. Like how hard would it have physically been to just go to every address on his list? Like, Everyone in the department is on a telephone making phone calls. Like there are more people in that department than there were people on his list. They could have probably found him before Encanto got back from his date, honestly, if they just gone to every house. But yeah, it just seems weird. Yeah. They're just running around crazy making phone calls. I think it's just a show. Like they know where he went. Like, why are you, why aren't you just going to those places? Like physically go there. Just call people. You could have, if that was the case, you just called people instead of going to their houses to begin with. Like whatever. I don't know. I thought I didn't like it. Hmm. <laughs> Grumpy. Anyway, so then Mulder and Scully and the police, boom, they burst into Encanto's apartment. Door frame shattered. <sighs> After repair that later. Well, Monica's not because she did. Anyway, a moment later, Scully finds Mulder and she tells him they found the landlady's body in the bathroom. And he asks about Cross and she doesn't say anything, but she's kind of like, mm. Yeah, her face is pretty much like, "Mm, not happy news. Yeah. So then Scully is interviewing Jesse and asking her to explain what happened. Jesse's crying, right? She's just kind of leaning against the wall and tears running down her face. And she says that she smelled her mom's perfume in his apartment and that's when she knew that he was lying about her being there and jesse said that she was scared that he was going to hurt her and he could tell that he wanted to hurt her when he grabbed her and then she talks about how like when she was trying to leave like he grabbed her when she kind of like stumbled over the suitcase and that he said he was going away scully asked him if she knows where and he says to new york and then scully's like okay well there's another person here they're gonna you know stay with you i'll be back and then like jesse's like Agent Scully, why would someone do this? And Scully's like, I don't know. And then she goes and talks to Mulder. And Mulder hands Scully a sketch that a composite artist made using the neighbor's description. And according to his lease, his name is Virgil Encanto. But otherwise, there's nothing that they can find on him. No social security number, no record, no bank account, nothing. And he's a freelance translator of Italian literature. But his publisher pays him in cashier's checks. So doesn't need a bank. And Scully says he told Jesse he was going to New York. And then an officer who's with them tells him he'll check flight schedules and issue an APB. So he runs off to do that. But then Mulder's like, he's not going to New York. He's too smart for that. And Scully asks how they can track him. 
And Mulder points to the computer and says he made contact with his victims through this computer. So all his victims, past, present, and future, are in here. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Pretty good. Time for some cyber stuff. Yeah. So then we're at the FBI regional office at the Computer Crime Division. And Mulder and Scully flank possibly the only FBI agent assigned to computer crimes. He's like the only guy there. But he's examining Encanto's computer. And he tells them that Encanto reformatted the hard drive and he doesn't know what, if anything, he'll be able to recover. But he puts in a disk and he lets the disk load. And he says, well, the good news is I can restore the erased files. The bad news is they're all password protected and encrypted. So it'll take some time. Then we cut to Ellen's apartment and her doorbell rings. And so she turns on the light and she's like, Joanne, is that you? Who is it? And like, she you know, heads to the door and through the door and Kanto says, Ellen, it's me. So she has like the chain lock engaged. So she opens the door with the chain still bolted. And he's like, I want to talk about what happened tonight when I left abruptly. And she's like, there's nothing to talk about. He made it clear what he wanted. And he implores her and he's like, I gave you a second chance after you stood me up. I just want the same courtesy. So she relents and lets him in. And then she offers him some coffee and locks the door behind him. Yeah. Cause he's all like, we can talk, but let's not do it out here. Like let's not air our dirty laundry in the hallway. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And then it's commercial. Yep. No one died yet. Nope. <laughs> hmm. I do like when they're like in the computer dude and he's like, it'll take some time. And Mulder's like, we don't have time. And he's like, it'll take as long as it's going to take, man. I can't pay any faster. <laughs> like putting the pressure on me, that's going to help. You know? So I like yeah. that. That was pretty good. Yeah. It's pretty he's good. like, whatever. You can say whatever you want, dude. It's still going to take the same amount of time for me to do this. Anyway. So then Mulder is with said computer tech guy and Scully comes in and says that Cleveland PD is coming up empty at the airport. Well, Mulder said they weren't going to find anything at the airport. Anyway. So why is she surprised Mulder? You know, he knows his stuff. You know, he's kind of a crazy person sometimes. And she says she's going to release a sketch to the media and it could probably be in the papers by the morning. And Mulder says that may not be necessary. And he points to a list on the screen. So apparently the dude was able to decrypt it. And there's a bunch of list of users names. And he points to one that says friend. And he says that was Lauren McElvey's handle. And there's a whole list of online handles, which Mulder calls a grocery list of victims. So Scully hands the sketch to the tech and says, scan it and send it to everyone on that list. And he's like, can do he takes it and then scully calls the online service to get telephone numbers for all those people right so at ellen's the phone rings and she pours in kanto coffee and then she excuses herself because she's like you know i'm gonna go put on some clothes and he's like you look fine and she's like no you know i just want to you know just let yeah, me go she's not naked clothes. she's just like in like well yeah she's in bed clothes so she wants to go yeah. put on something a little more whatever and we see that her message light is beeping yeah because she didn't answer her phone yeah and when she, she turns, yes. And so she turns on her computer while she's in her room and she checks her email. And then she sends Joanne a message that's like, you won't believe who's here. I'll tell you about it in the morning or whatever. And she sends the email. And then we see Scully's on the phone assuring a woman that she'll be fine. She's like, just lock your doors. Don't let anyone in. And Mulder hangs up on his call and tells her that that was Cleveland PD. And three women on their list have already been reported missing. And Scully tells them that they've contacted everyone else except for two, and they left messages for those two. And of course, Ellen's name is on that list. And Mulder's like, well, we better go check on those two then. So Ellen finishes her email, and then she gets a new message alert. 
And it's the FBI warning with the sketch. But right as the sketch starts to load, you know, it's an old 90s internet, so it takes like 10 years for one picture to load. And Encanto comes into the room and he's like, I hope you're not online with some other guy. And she's like, no, no, I was just emailing my girlfriend. I wish she would like close the screen or something, but she doesn't. Because she does see the picture before he comes in and recognizes him. Yeah. Yeah. But she doesn't close the image, which she should do. No. Unfortunately, she doesn't. So she's like, oh, yeah, I was just emailing my girlfriend. And he's like, oh, what were you telling her? And Ellen's like, how happy I am that you're still interested in me. But then he can't see her screen, really. But he can see the reflection of the screen in the mirror. And he sees the sketch. So like now he knows that she's seen the sketch. So he approaches her and she gets up and she moves behind the computer desk. And she's like, I haven't changed yet. You should go wait outside. And she's like near tears. Like she knows that he knows. And he's like, you look beautiful and don't need to change. And she like begs him to leave her alone. Yeah. So then Mulder and Scully arrive and they knock on Ellen's door, but there's no answer. And Joanne, her neighbor, her friend comes out like a couple doors down and it's like, she's getting in a robe and she's like, what's going on? She might be a busybody. Every floor has one. So, you know, who knows? Anyway, she tells them that Ellen is home because Ellen just emailed her. And Mulder and Scully draw their guns. And Mulder kicks the door and another door frame gone. And the apartment is dark. And they reach her bedroom. And the computer has been knocked over. But the sketch is still on the monitor. And then there's a window that's open. And Mulder goes to it and sees someone running. And then we also hear someone whimper and struggle. So Scully goes over and pulls the blanket off and it's Ellen and Scully like gets the goop out of her mouth so she can breathe because she can't breathe. So they get it out of her. And then Scully's like, I'll stay here with Ellen. And so Mulder goes out the window to go chase the dude who ran down the street. Dude's got a lead on him. But anyway, so Mulder like goes down a fire escape and jumps down the street. Meanwhile, Scully calls for an ambulance and she requests a special chemical burn unit because acid. Right. And so Mulder's chasing whoever it was into the alley. And then he hears the guy and he pulls out his gun. He's like, federal agent, put up your hands. And then it turns out it's just some kid with like a spray paint can. He's like, don't shoot me, dude. And so he's like, and then we cut back to the apartment and Scully, 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 Scully. She puts her gun on the floor and then goes into the bathroom. And then in this case, it's actually going to work out for her that she did that. But yeah, seriously, don't put your gun on the floor and leave it there. Come on. You got a holster. Scully, use your holster. Yeah, anyway, she I mean, goes in the bathroom. It's necessary for the scene, right? So I know, but it's like before. stupid as stupid could be. Anyway, well, I mean, the scene wouldn't have worked without it. So I know, <laughs> really but it doesn't. But the scene doesn't work with it because dumb and no one who's a federal agent would ever do that. Anyway, so lazy writing. Anyway, so she's digging around in the bathroom sink. She's grabbing like like Vaseline and some like you know gauze and. Stuff to help treat her burns and stuff. Right. Yeah. To help get the stuff off of her. And then also like to treat her skin until the chemical dudes can get there. And then she looks up in the mirror and Encanto pulls the shower curtain back and he lunges at her and he slams her head against the mirror. Boom. Shatters it and throws her against the bathtub. And then she gets like a kick in and she hits him in the stomach a couple of times and like kicks his knee. Pow. But he does manage to like, I think she goes in for a second kick or a third kick and he grabs her foot and flips her onto the floor. So she lands on her back on the floor and then he jumps on top of her and he's going in for a smooch. And she's like, oh, and then like she had like some nail scissors because I guess like to help cut the gauze that she'd grabbed or something. And so she's reaching for him on the ground and he's still trying to get his mouth on hers. But she grabs the nail scissors and she stabs him. He's like, oh, and like as he rears up from getting stabbed, pow, 
got a gunshot wound in his chest. And then we see Ellen standing there holding a gun, Scully's gun, and her face is all messed up from the acid. But she shot that dude. Oh, Hell yeah, Ellen. Hell yeah. yeah. It's such a good scene. I freaking love it. I think it it's is, really but good. it's only there because Scully is not a good federal agent and just leaves her gun laying around. So anyway, anyway. women power. Women are awesome. That's fine. Scully's just not a good federal agent. Okay. Anyway, this, yeah, I love the scene. I thought it was really well done. That's no, it's great. It's just it's the reason why it's there is because someone has to be totally incompetent for it to happen. So yeah. No, I'm not. Yeah. No, good. Good job, Ellen. Like I actually wrote in my notes, good job, Ellen. Like you've done more with your gun than Scully's ever done with hers, unless one you've shot her ex-boyfriend or your molder, and she's gonna shoot you. So good job. Yeah. Or Scully. <laughs> oh, it's okay. So then we're at the Cuyahoga County Jail. And Mulder has a list of missing persons in front of Encanto. And he's at the table. He's wearing like an orange jumpsuit. And the skin on his face and hands is all dry and flaky and like peeling off. Mm-hmm. And Mulder implores him to give the family's closure and tell them which of these missing persons are missing because of him. And he looks at the list and then he says, they're all mine. And Mulder grabs the sheet from the table and leaves like he's he's done now. And Scully remains behind and she just like asks Encanto why. And he's like. When you look at me, you see a monster, but I was just feeding a hunger. And Scully tells him that he's more than a monster. He didn't just feed on their bodies. He fed on their minds. And he says his weakness was no greater than theirs. He gave them what they wanted and they gave him what he needed. And Scully's like, not anymore and turns to leave. And then he quotes something in Italian, which translates to the dead are no longer lonely. And then Scully leaves. Yeah, he translates that for her because he says yes. it in Italian and then he and then he translates it. It's like it's like we looked it up or it's on the screen. He actually then says it in English. So and then it's the end. Yep. And before we get into any further discussion, um, Aloka McLean, who plays Jesse, is actually older than Tori. She was born December 21st, 1981. So yeah, she's like six you, months old. So you were watching this episode and you were younger than Jesse in this episode. Barely. <laughs> By like six months. <laughs> yeah. So all I have left, but help from us doing our ratings, all I have to say is like the writing direction in this episode was not great. Like it had good moments. It also has some bad ones detracted from it. Nutter is, he's a really hit and miss director. Like his, he's, this is his 13th episode as a director on the X-Files. His previous one was Clyde Bruckman's Final Reposa, which was really good, but it also had some weird choices. It's just like, there were just some things that I was like, oh, why did, why did you do that? That seems weird. And then again, the I think the writing is like, the biggest thing is that whole like Scully's gonna put her gun down. It's like, eh, I mean, I don't think like let I, Ellen just let let Ellen have a gun. Like let her get one out of her drawer. Like she just like have it be like a revolver. Like maybe she has her. I mean, I guess I'd be out of character for her to have a gun. Yeah. So, but it's just like that's just like something like I mean, you watch that and you're like, why is she leaving her gun? Because like they focus on the. I mean, well they have to. Otherwise, it's like why, why did she get a gun? Right. But I mean, like, she sets it down it on the ground. Uh-huh. And it's like. Just yeah, because she's of, holding it. She there's an emergency. Think of situation. a better way to do it. Like she's, have it like have the dude knock it out of her hand and it goes out of the bathroom. Eh. Right. I mean, like, I think it's fine. I it totally makes sense to me that like in that no, situation, it, you're you, more worried about no, it does person. not make sense because makes you sense do not me. just set your this. you don't set your loaded gun down. You're a federal agent. You don't just like, oh, I'm gonna go help you. Let me just put my gun on the floor. She has a freaking holster. Like it's lazy writing. It, like okay. I came okay. up with a way better way to do it. She draws her gun. The dude knocks it away. It skitters across the floor out of the bathroom. She stabs him. 
he gets up to get her and then kaboom, right? Because Ellen, Ellen grabs a gun. That's a way more effective scene. It doesn't make Scully look like an incompetent weirdo. And then it gives Ellen empowerment to shoot the dude. It like it's a win-win instead of us making Scully look like she doesn't know what she's doing. Yeah, I don't think it does that. So I disagree with you. That's fine. You can. Yeah, it's, it's I a, do. It's a, it's allowed. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I do. So cool. Yeah, I think it's fine. It makes sense to me that you would put down your gun to go run and get some stuff to get the acid that's eating away at this person's face off their face. That seems like a it more makes sense to me issue. just put it in my holster and then go do it so that I have my gun in case I need it. Yeah, uh, but she thinks the threat is gone. So, you know, she's not a good federal agent because you never should assume that. But like we always say, like Scully's not a real person. So like hating Scully is stupid. But it's just like it's just lazy writing, super lazy writing. And they I mean, they do that a lot. I mean, it's always different writers. So it's not like, you know, the X-Files. But it's like, that's just lazy. Like, come, like off the top of my head, I came up with a way better way to do it. And, well, I like, mean, I think they that too. the problem with it skittering out the door is, I don't know, like it just it creates some problems. So like what? Like, well, like then she has to like, I don't know. It just it feels like that's harder than her just having the gun there and being able to pick it up and just take it. Well, except it doesn't make any sense for her to just leave the gun there. That's the problem. Yes, you made that again, very clear. Problem. You have so. made your feelings on the scene very, very clear. I, I understand know. your point of view. I just don't yeah. agree with you. I just, I can totally see why she would do that. And it does not bother me. I hope you never become a federal agent. You're gonna I'm get not shot. planning on it. You're going to get someone shot and it could be you. Yeah. So. Or it could save your life like it did for Scully. So <laughs> worked out. It worked out. I mean, if she had her own gun, she could just pulled her gun instead of reaching out trying to get because obviously she had a hand free. But yeah, but it's more badass if Ellen does it story wise. It is. That's what I'm saying. Is it is? It's just like there. I think there's better ways they could have done it than what they did. Yeah. Because then, because then again, because then you got two women who are strong and empowered instead of one who's like, "What is she doing?" And then one who is like. Yeah. Well, I don't know how many people were thinking like you, though, and going like, what is she doing? I don't think a lot of people thought about it that hard, to be honest. Uh, I don't know. Just see. She lays down her gun. It's like, why are you laying down your gun? So I was wondering, I I was wondering how she got the gun. Because like I said, I had watched it fast. And I think that scene is so short right there that I didn't see how she got the gun. But I was like, that's got to be Scully's gun. Yeah. No, I wasn't sure if it was Scully's gun. And then when I watched it, because I was all ready to be like, how did she get Scully's gun? And then I watched it. And I'm like, oh, she like sets her gun down and gets up and walks away. And it's like, what are you doing? Like, put in your holster. But, yeah. Yeah. I didn't know if that was Scully's gun at first either. I had to go back and look. Yeah. Because I was like, did she have a gun? Where'd she get the gun? That, that's exactly what I was. I was already. I was like, mm, boy, they're going to get it on this one. And they got it anyway. But yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, hey, it they works. made us argue those bastards. I mean, you know, I mean, you're allowed to totally think what you want. I just, I don't see it the same way. It doesn't bother me. I don't think it's bad writing. I can totally see why you would do that in that situation. I, I mean, obviously um, a federal agent should, you know, uh, have a clearer head, but again, acid eating her face, bigger priorities, right? Like, I know, run but to the again, bathroom, get that out of I've got my gun out when I'm not using my gun. Where does it go? In my holster, not like wherever I happen to lay it down. Like that's yeah. going to cause problems. Totally. So, not your cell phone, which you should also not just leave somewhere because someone else steal it. True. Very true. Yeah. yeah. I did wonder, and uh, we kind of didn't talk about that that much. I kind of mentioned it because I didn't think about it until we were actually discussing it. Like, why is Mulder using her roommate's phone? Why doesn't he have his phone? 
Like, yeah, Kelly has her cell phone. Why is he like, can I use your phone? And then he's apparently made like lots of calls before he calls Scully. So, yeah, I don't know why maybe. he doesn't have a phone. Again, it's just one of those things where like, yeah, I guess they needed maybe. a way to get, I mean, well, he could have used his cell phone even when she leaves to get out of the scene so he could make a phone call. And he could just whip his phone out because she'd even like, oh, because she's like, oh, I'll go get them for you. And then he could have been like, okay. And then just like whipped his phone out when she walked out. But yeah, that was weird too. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe the writers <laughs> decided he didn't have his phone today. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe they forgot he had a phone. <laughs> I was also, I guess I don't know because I just think like, I think that way a lot with like gloves and stuff and, and like food safety and whatever. Because like, like Scully puts on her gloves to do the thing, but then like she grabs a recorder with her gloves on and using it. And then like, she like just whips her phone out with the gloves on and answers her phone with the gloves on. And I was like, is she changing gloves? Is she like, I mean, I would hope so, but yeah, I don't know. Also, I'd be like, I'd want to take the glove off before I answered my phone just because I might've got gunk on my glove after pulling that body out. But yeah, Yeah, I think, I think, I think of all that stupid detail stuff that no one else is going to think about, but to me, it just totally bugs me. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's stuff that, like, yeah, I mean, you're just, you're thinking about it in, like, real, like, if I were in this situation, this is what I would do, or this is what someone should do, and not in a, we're making a TV show, how do we convey to the audience this one thing, or how do we tell them, like, how this happened, here's the way to do it, like, economy of time, you don't have a lot of time, you gotta get that shit on screen and move on. Yeah, I get it. Get the scene, cut it. I get it, it's just, Get it going. I need something to talk about. No, totally. Yeah, this episode, there wasn't a lot to say. Like, I'm surprised because I was definitely ready to be like, oh, fuck. Fuck. They're going to be so awful to fat people. And they're not. They're really not. I mean, like, oh. there there really isn't any. Like, it's just like, oh, these women had trouble dating. And like, it was a very, it's such a 90s. It is so freaking 90s. It's like these women who are just like, worried about how they look and worried about you know not that that doesn't still happen but like it's just the whole aesthetic of it like we're meeting in online chat rooms and i really want to find someone who likes me for me but like they're not going to like me when they see me and like this is the beginning of online dating so like there were newspaper ads and stuff but like yeah still like this whole new thing it's such a also also it goes into that thing like and i mentioned it a little bit like how the media i think skews that kind of stuff because like yeah like in in the the opening scene and maybe it's just because like i'm more used to seeing like larger people around right but like in that scene i don't know that you would really be like oh she's heavy right you can't like you see her face but her face is a little jolly but it's also like she could just be a little bit older like that happens right some people well she does a little bit of a chubby face which you know but some people just do i've seen people with chubby faces who are not fat at all yeah it's true so it's just you know but i was like i was just like oh and then it was like oh but then, like in the photo of her in her roommate, when when they're talking to her roommate, they show a photo of her, and in that picture, you'd be like, "Oh yeah, she's she's bigger," you know. Yeah. You get like a, you get the full body shot, but then like she's 165 pounds, and I'm like, "Okay, I get it. I don't know how tall this person is supposed to be. I don't remember if they say what her height was. I think Scully says it maybe in the when she's doing her recording. I forget. But it's like 165 pounds, and I'm like, okay. Like I see my wife all the time. I see other people. And yeah, Aaron is like five foot nine. She's kind of tall, but like 165 pounds. Well, and that's the thing. So I was going to say, and I didn't bring this up because we got off track on Scully's incompetent, which I don't agree with. (laughs) (laughs) I like Scully, damn it. But like, 
when I was in high school, I was like 163, 165 pounds. Until oh, you I, did say that. You did say that in the episode. Um, yeah, I said that in the beginning, but at the end, like I was going to mention, like, like part of that was like in the nineties, like I couldn't like in the junior section, like you couldn't find size 14, size 16 jeans. Like you, you know, like they didn't even, you know, you were always made to feel like, you know, and I, it's looking back now and this is 100%. I'm not saying how fat you are deserves, you know, has any bearing on how you should be treated. You can be as fat as anyone, you know, it doesn't matter what you weigh. You're a human being. You deserve dignity. You deserve respect. And fat phobia is gross and awful. And there's no like degree. I mean, there are degrees of it in terms of how society treats people, but you know, there's no degrees of humanity. Like everyone's a person. Right. But like, when I look back now at some of the photos, when I was in high school and stuff, I look at them like, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't that big. Like I always felt like this giant, like hippo, (laughs) like I always, because you're, you know, you're made to feel like you're so othered, especially in the nineties in high school. And I don't know if it's got, you know, I don't know what it's like now, but like, you know, you just always like, you couldn't find clothes and you always felt like you were just like outside. And then you look at photos and you're like, damn, like I wasn't even like, I, you know, there's, (laughs) I was so small. I mean, I'm so much, I'm much fatter now. And like, I feel so much better about myself because like, I'm, I have grown up and I've learned to accept myself and that stuff doesn't, I'm like, fuck it. I, you know, like I do stuff, but like, I do it for health. I don't really, I have no plans to lose weight. I don't even think weight loss is generally really possible for most of the population, at least not sustained long-term weight loss. But yeah, it's just yeah. funny to me to looking back at like seeing photos of me at that size and going, man, I wasn't even like, I felt so awful and I hated myself so much. And like, I was cute. I was a cute kid. Who cares? Like, you know what I mean? So also, anyway, I think, yeah. Well, and also I think too, I mean, like I didn't necessarily have that. I mean, I've always just felt bad about myself, even when I wasn't overweight. Cause I wasn't always like when I met my wife, I weighed like 175 pounds. I was really, but Maybe it's because I'm a dude too, and so there's a different kind of thing yeah. with, with dudes being big and and women being big. But the thing with me has always been, and this is where I was getting to, like the whole like the media skews it, is that like I would tell people how much I weigh, and they'd be like, "No way, there's no way you weigh that much," because like I would say like, "Oh, I weigh," you know, we'd be talking about people, and I'm like, "Well, I weigh like 275," you know, back when I was 275, and they'd be like, "No way," and it's because like you would see things on the TV or on TV shows. Or even on the news and be like, this guy wasn't allowed on the airplane because he weighed 270 pounds and like he wouldn't fit in the seats. And you see this guy who looks like Jabba the Hutt and you're like, and that's what people think like, oh, that's what 270 looks like. And it's like, and then there's me walking around who I just looks like a big dude. And they're like, there's no way you weigh 270 or 300 or 350. And I'm like, yeah, I do. And they just don't believe it because they're like, they're so just in your brain. You're like 300 pounds is someone you like can't get out of their bed. Like, you know. That kind Which of stuff. Is, so, yeah, it's crazy. But I mean, it's not even just about the media skewing things. It's just like, although, like, you know, I mean, in Hollywood, a size 14, 16, like that's somebody who's like next to a, you know, the actors that they tend to cast. Like zero. You are going to look, you know, a lot bigger. Like, I mean, Tara on Buffy is not, I've met her. Amber Benson is not a big person, but just next to Sarah Michelle Geller, who is so small and she's got like a tiny frame. And like, so next to like her, she does look bigger. And it's just funny because you're like, you're really not like, it's just the way Hollywood is always casting really, really small people. And hopefully that's changing yeah. a little bit. Well, like Jillian, Jillian Anderson is what, like five foot two or something? Yeah. I mean, she's so, short. She's little. Yeah. She's cute as hell. But yeah. Anyway, it's just weird. And so like, it definitely felt like it was going to be like, oh God, this is going to be a gross episode. And then it really wasn't. So like, it's fine. <laughs> 
tangents. Anyhow, I like this episode a lot. I was worried when it started because I kind of I have a better memory of a lot of season three episodes than I did like previously, I feel like, because as soon as they start, I'm like, oh, yeah, this one where that didn't happen as much in season one and season two. Like I kind of knew some of them, but like this one, I feel like as soon as it starts, I get like a clearer memory of like what the whole episode is. I did not remember the end with Ellen shooting him. So that was badass. And I was pretty excited about it. But yeah, I thought it was good. It was like, I was so worried. It was just going to be this like fat phobic mess of like, oh, fat people can't find love. And there is a lot of the lonely hearts thing. But like, I think it was mostly like because the internet was such a weird new thing. And so like, of course, it was scary that people are meeting people online. And like, that's kind of what they were going for. Uh, I thought it worked really well. I actually liked the writing. I didn't have a problem with it. I thought it all worked. Yeah, I liked it a lot. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to hell money. So, oh, see, and you know, I think, <laughs> we'll yeah, find, I mean, I, we'll find out, but yeah, I just, yeah, it was fine. I mean, it's not like the episode was, was the entire episode wasn't bad. It was a good premise. I like it. It's just, it had, it, it, it fell on those like, how am I going to make this happen? Oh, I know a way. And it was like just the laziest way possible to do it. But again, so, I have higher standards than the X Files editors do, apparently. So, <laughs> So anyway, I think I'm going to give this one a seven because I think it's pretty okay. good. It's not All their right. best episode ever, but pretty solid. No, well, I'm going to give it a six. So again, I don't think it was that bad. Yeah. It's just there's there's stuff in there that I'm like, you know, try harder. You're writing. You know, I'm sure you're I mean, I'm sure you're making pretty good money to not be bad at your job. So try to not be bad at your job, especially because you're a freaking story editor. Come on, dude. I mean, write better stories. So, whatever. Yeah, six. Cool. All right. right. That's probably all we have to say. I think that's all we have to say. Yeah. Yeah. Ba (laughs) Closing script. All right. I Want to Rewatch is hosted by Tori and Nick and recorded at Black Cat Studios. That's right. We made this. And be sure to join us next time as we rewatch The X-Files, Season 3, Episode 7, The Walk. And try to figure out if If the the truth truth is is still out there.
I'll see if I can splice that in. If not, I might just do a little afterwards. Tori and I, yeah, you can always do some that stuff too. we meant to, and then I can just <laughs> cut that in. Yeah. When Tori stopped being angry, she talked. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not angry. I'm just like, no, you're you know. fine. I, I wouldn't say what's about being angry at me. I was like, when mom and dad stopped fighting, then we talked and this is what we said. But we'll end on the, we'll end on the anger and silence and then go into the credits. Oh, dear.